In the new world he supposedly discovered in 1492, if you don't count the millions who were living here already, Christopher Columbus is a reputation in eclipse. The sea captain navigator whose explorations gave Spain a massive empire has also had laid at his feet the seeds of genocide and destruction by conquest and disease of early people and culture throughout Latin America. A number of U.S. cities, including Los Angeles, have renamed his federal holiday Indigenous Peoples Day. And the outcry even reached the Tournament of Roses Parade, which in 1992, the 500th anniversary of Columbus' voyage, ended up inviting a Native American congressman to join a descendant of Columbus as Parade Grand Marshal. Had Columbus sailed due west, people in the Carolinas might be speaking Spanish today. But he sailed west, then south, and the people he found there looked very different from what he expected to find. Paradoxically, 50 years exactly after Columbus sailed the ocean blue, Imperial Spain recognized some of the New World's earliest human rights laws ever. Those laws didn't stop Native Americans from being exploited, robbed, even killed, but they could not legally be bought and sold as slaves. Caltech history professor and author Nicholas Way Gomez undertakes a voyage into this odd legacy of the man the Spanish call Cristobal Colón. When Columbus sailed first to the west and then to the south, what were his preconceptions about the people he would find and whether he even regarded them as people? Well, there was a long tradition in uh, Mediterranean Europe, going back as far as the record, the written record allows. The Greeks had a conception that people in the Mediterranean lived ideal lives, that the Mediterranean itself was an ideal place for life and indeed for the normalcy of life. And they thought of barbarians and particularly of those barbarians that lived in the colder and hotter latitudes of the world to be inferior to them. They lived in places where nature was somewhat monstrous, produced all kinds of marvels and monsters. And the blackness of sub-Saharan Africans was considered a sort of monstrosity among humans. And so as Columbus entered this new world, he expected that the farther south he went, the blacker the skin of the people he would find. And that shaped itself in his mind about how to deal with them. Is that right? This was a common preconception among Europeans, the idea that the farther you went into tropical latitudes, the darker the skin complexion of peoples. And indeed, there was a a tradition of, of thinkers and writers that began to connect blackness itself with uh, servitude, with the condition of slavery. And so Columbus expected, presumably, to find black-skinned people and expected to exploit them as black-skinned people were being exploited in Africa? Well, this is not said explicitly in the documents, but he certainly expressed great surprise to find that the color of the Indians did not tend to darken as he moved farther south into the Caribbean. And so this discovery of lighter-skinned people than he expected occasioned a kind of OS moment, like, what are we going to do with these people? After 
the discovery in 1492. Columbus was returning uh, to Europe and saw himself victoriously returning to Europe. He wrote a number of letters, versions of which we have today. And in the most public of those letters, he promised the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabel, that he would deliver an infinite number of slaves and that those slaves would be from among the idolaters. Enemies of the Christian faith is probably what he meant by the term idolaters. In Atlantic Africa, the Portuguese had used the excuse that sub-Saharan Africans were enemies of Christ, and they had long, in the course of the 15th century, they had gone to the papacy and they had asked for permission to continue to conquer and invade these places and enslave those peoples, which was something that was common in war. And the Vatican said, sure, go ahead. They acted as notary publics to crown ventures in Atlantic Africa. These documents are some of the most belligerent documents you can possibly imagine, essentially offering spiritual indulgences in exchange for the conquering, invasion, the subjugation of those territories. It's violent language that is used, and it's very, very explicit. So here we have Columbus who has a quandary, but it didn't take him long to decide, nope, they're slave material no matter what their skin color. Yes. So, you know, so things get very complicated as soon as he returns to Europe because the Catholic monarchs, in line with the custom of using the papacy as a notary public, they went to Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope, and asked for him to deliver documents essentially donating the Indies to Castile. And those donations were contested very soon afterwards because there was a tradition already in Europe among experts in law that questioned the right of the Pope to have anything but spiritual dominion over non-Christians. The Pope expedited these documents, these donations of the Indies to the Catholic monarchs, and what year was this that we're talking about? Well, Columbus was returning to the New World in 1493, and he stayed there until 1496. So about the first group of slaves going to market and what happened to them. Columbus had promised basically the delivery of uh, slaves from among the idolaters in that very public letter. Columbus conducted raids in Hispaniola. They collected about 1,500 people. And of those 1,500 people, 500 were selected to be brought back to the slave market in Seville. 500 others were distributed among the colonists, and about 500 others were told to scram. You can imagine the terror of people running for their lives away from this, these scenes. 
In any case, those 500 slaves arrived in the market in Seville, and in 1495, something really surprising happened, which was that they were not automatically sold to the people who had pledged to buy them. The crown issued a, an order to the Bishop of Seville not to bill the buyers of these slaves until the matter had been studied by their theologians, by their lawyers, and by men of letters. In other words, it is the first reference we have to an official debate about the legality of enslaving the so-called Indians. Did this surprise you? It did and it didn't. We have known for some time that Imperial Spain was the home for one of the first modern debates about the legality of empire and about the legality of enslaving, in this case, Indians. But there are indications that this debate was on almost from the moment that Columbus sent the first 500 slaves to the market in Seville. What may be even more surprising is that, in fact, those slaves were ordered, released, and returned to Hispaniola. They were not allowed to be sold. And this means that the decision or the advice must have been, it is not clear that we can enslave them. But the question of what the grounds for enslavement were was uh, kind of muddy. These were clearly not infidels. They had not had a chance, in other words, to reject the word of Christ as uh, people in Africa might have had who had become Muslims, for instance. So they hadn't chosen to oppose Christianity. They didn't know about Christianity in the first place. They were neophytes. They had no idea. But then there was the question of, you know, the other Indians that were being enslaved, right and left. Could they be enslaved? I suspect that part of the question had been raised by the fact that the Indians had a, a skin color that w did not correspond to that of African slaves being imported into, uh, into Europe, and that this caused a certain amount of confusion. It appears that uh, Isabel had mm, quite a bit of conscience in respect to this issue. When she died in 1504, in her last will and codicil, she ordered Ferdinand and her heirs to respect her wishes in relation to the Indians. She wanted them to be treated as vassals of the crown. She ordered them to be treated as vassals, and what did that mean as vassals? Then? It means that they should not suffer any harm to their selves, to their persons, or to their property, that it should be respected, and that they should be treated like any other vassal of the crown. Like subjects of the crown. Absolutely, subjects of the, of the crown. Then we have a second instance after her death. Ferdinand himself calls, appears to have called a junta in order to examine the question of the papal bulls of donation, which are being brought into question seemingly by this last will of Isabel's. We don't know much more about this, except that the crown clearly felt that the charter, that the donations were a charter, not only for spiritual dominion, but also for temporal dominion.
in some ways ironically, the first protests against the treatment that colonists were visiting on the Indians came from missionaries. In 1511, the Dominican friars in the island of Hispaniola organized a round of sermons from the pulpit in which they condemned what was called by one of them the exquisite cruelties that had been visited on the Indians because they were being treated as virtual slaves. You can imagine how this went down with the crowd at church. The colonists were furious, and they sent back a protest to Ferdinand. That was a tactical mistake on the part of the colonists <laughs> because Ferdinand, being the legalist that he was, called a junta, a council of learned people, including theologians, to ask the question as to how these Indians were to be treated. They came out with the following opinion. They said, the Indians have a right to be treated fairly. They have a right to recreation, to periods of rest. They ought to be remunerated for their work, and they ought to be allowed to have time in order to tend to their families and property. Astonishing to hear seemingly modern concepts come out of what was essentially then a feudal monarchical system. Extremely modern concepts. It is the first indication that we have of a what was then snowballing as a debate about the occupation of the Indies and about the future of the Indians themselves. Ferdinand was not very happy with this conclusion, and so he basically slashed this junta and went on and gathered his own junta. So he managed to get some people who would say exactly what he wanted. And so Ferdinand, King Ferdinand, had his way overturning his dead wife's wishes, overturning the conclusions of the first junta. But in 1542, 50 years after Columbus <laughs> arrived in the New World, yes. there, there was an edict by Ferdinand's grandson that accomplished what? This first official debate spurred on a controversy that only grew over the years. And one of the most important figures in this early history of modern human rights is a man by the name of Bartolome de las Casas, who was also a Dominican and who arrived in the New World at the turn of the 16th century, who eventually became a priest. And a historian. Bartolome de las Casas suffered a process of increasing epiphanies that led him to radicalize himself over the course of several decades. And he came to question the legality of the conquest and to question the status that Indians had been accorded in the new world order. He was one of the voices that were raised against Indian slavery in the 1530s and against the system of land and labor grants that Columbus had installed, known as the encomienda system. Las Casas had the the ear of the crown of Charles and his advisors. Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. And in 1542, the new laws prohibited the enslavement of Indians and the idea that you could, that your heirs could inherit Indians and land forever and ever. 
the promulgation of these new laws caused an upheaval in the new world. And eventually, the crown kind of goes back on it. But this was an incredibly important moment in the history of human rights as uh, far as the inhabitants of the Americas uh, was uh, concerned. The paradox is that while slavery didn't destroy them in the New World, still greed did its work, disease did its work, and the people were ravaged nonetheless. They had rights on paper, but in practice, look what happened to them. Absolutely. There is no question about that. By 1502, the first uh, African slaves were being imported into the Caribbean. Bartolomé de las Casas, he considered that what was happening in Africa was just as terrible, just as illegal, just as sinful as what was happening in the Indies. And what about Columbus? His reputation has suffered a great deal in the last half century. On the one hand, Columbus was a great navigator. What he did, which was to connect the old world and the new, has had consequences all the way to this day. You and I would not be sitting here if it had not been for the Colombian voyages. Part of his legacy is, of course, the terrible things that happens to Amerindians as a consequence of his voyages and European expansion into the Americas. So this is a very complex legacy. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It was a courageous thing to do, but someone was already here. In well, Nicolas Way Gomez, thank you so much. Thank you, Pat. This has been a wonderful conversation. Pat Morrison asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Dave Wine and Mike Heflin and edited by Heflin. Christopher Columbus' children's songs are from YouTube, as is the anonymous Spanish guitar music. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast.